pleasure to serve with your elders out here, uh, Dan, Mark, and, and Bill, and of course uh, Dave and Josue, and uh, just serving with them and loving uh, you guys and praying for you guys as we strive together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and then of course, uh, as, as many of you know, I'm the good-looking of the Badal brothers, and, uh, and I have to say you guys have been an incredible blessing to my, uh, my brother and his family. And uh, they have been forever changed as a family because of their time out here at the Indian Creek campus. And for that, the Badal family is incredibly thankful for your generosity and your kindness and faithful to, faithfulness to them as a family. And so it's my joy to be here. You can pray for me. I've got a couple more hours of a weekend without my wife. Uh, her and 70 other ladies from some of the other campuses are at a women's retreat. And uh, it has been utter chaos in the Badal family. But we are dressed. We are here. We've had at least something to eat, and uh, now I pray for uh, Patty downstairs because she will feel the wrath of the Badal boys in Children's Church. But it is a pleasure to be here. I'm going to ask that you take God's Word in your hands, and if you would, would you stand for the reading of God's Word, and let's get into this text this morning. We've been in the study of Mark, and we're going to be looking at our passage this morning that starts in verse 33 of Mark chapter 9. And then we'll be going through uh, to verse 50. I'll be reading from the New International Version, so you're aware of that as well. It says that the disciples and Jesus came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because the way, on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first... He must be very last and be a servant of all. Now he took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me uh, does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, John said, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. And we told him to stop, because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of cold water in my name, because you belong to Christ, will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin... It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it may be made salty again? How Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Let me just say a blessing on our time. Father God, I thank you for this time, for the time of worship, for the time of the drama with the puppets, that remind us of this incredible text, of our time around the table and our time of prayer. Lord, now lead us to your word, lead us to truth, 
not only knowledge, but Lord, wisdom that we can apply to our lives so that we can be a different people, transformed and made into the likeness of your Son. We need it, Lord, because we live in a world that goes so countercultural to the things that are addressed in this passage. And so, Lord, let us be the salty Christians that you desire for us to be, so that in doing so, we may bring a lost world to your Son, Jesus Christ. Speak through me, Lord. I pray that my words would be your words. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I would say this comment, but I know a lot of you will will be upset by me saying that, but the older I get at the ripe old age of 35 years of age, the more and more I see that the world seems to be upside down. It doesn't take long to look at our newscasts and to read the newspaper and to see the world of chaos that is ensuing around us. And yet what boggles my mind is that though we see this world in utter chaos, when a Christian speaks of the name of Christ and lives a life that has traditional values and pursues the kind of walk that would honor God, they are the one that's called the fanatic. They are the one that is called the freak. They are the one that is called to be out of step, if you will, with what normal living is all about. Sadly, in our day, the nuclear family will be something of the past, where a mother and father raising children in a way that would honor God will be looked at, even as it is in some ways now, as being something odd, something that seems out of step in our world today. The world seems to be upside down, but sadly, the world looks at its life and its culture and its way of living as being normal, as being a way that seems right to man. But Scripture says there is a path that it seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to destruction. And what I want us to pull from this text today is within this upside-down world, It is Jesus who flips it upside down. It is Jesus, if you will, that wants to flip the world and its culture on its end. You see, we live in a culture, as Peter said, that he reminds us that we are aliens and strangers. That we are just sojourning. We are just in a pilgrimage to our home that is to come. I'm so thankful for Robert's words today that we have a home waiting for us and that we are proclaiming that, that this is not our home, but we have one that's waiting for us in eternity. But how are we to live? Amidst this upside-down world, amidst all this calamity and all this debauchery that is in our world today, how must a Christian live? In our passage today, Jesus gives us three things that we need to have as a part of our life. You see, Jesus has been teaching, as we know, and as Dave has been faithfully uh, teaching you out here, um, that Jesus has been teaching these 12 men what it means to live a life centered on Christ. He has said, if anyone follow me, he must deny himself and take up the cross. And I believe that connected to that passage is what Jesus is going to share with us this morning. Because Christ wants us as a people, as a campus, as a church, to be salt and light to this world. 
But if we're not living the way Christ wants us to, then we've got a problem because the world will look at us as same as they do everyone else. We will be normal to the world, and Jesus has not asked us to live a normal life, but a holy life. And that holy life is going to mean that we're going to look different. We're going to look upside down when the world looks at us. But I might I add that we are not redefining what living is all about, but we are reestablishing what the true definition of our Creator has said, that this is the life to worship Jesus Christ, the One whom the Father has sent. And so how do we begin to live in a world that's upside down, even though they view us to be upside down? How do we begin to, to see that all come out? Well, we need to pursue a life of upside down living for the sake of godliness. There are some of us who, and, and it, just, it just is a way of our personality, that we like to be the odd person in the room. We like to be the one who's different than everybody else. If everybody's turning right, we want to turn left. If everybody's going up, we want to go down. But this isn't what Jesus is simply saying. He isn't saying be different for the sake of being different. But be different for the sake of godliness. And there's a big difference between those two things. And the first thing that he wants us to speak on is the issue of significance. And I want you to write in your outlines this morning, the first point in my message is if we truly want to live an upside-down life in this world, it involves seeking significance through the Savior and not self. Notice verse 33 with me this morning. The text says, that they came to Capernaum. Now Jesus has been teaching now for three years and His time on earth is coming to an end and He has taught them over and over again what it means to follow Him and the ways that He has established. Now they come to Capernaum and Jesus asks a simple question. And the simple question is, what were you talking about, disciples, on your way here during the journey? It's a simple question, but it's a question that penetrated the heart of the disciples. The text more literally, according to the original Greek, meant that he kept asking this question. What were you talking about? And then a couple moments would pass with silence. He'd say, hey guys, what was the subject of your conversation? And then just as it is in the, the literal, they would come back with quietness and silence over and over again. They didn't have an answer for Jesus. There was an uneasiness. As a father, I've come to learn what a simple question can do in the lives of my children. Well, the first question that comes when the kids jump into the car after a day of school, whether by my wife or myself, is, how was your day? And I will tell you, I know without any question in a matter of a couple seconds whether it was a good day or not. You see, when the child responds, yeah, it was a great day, this is what we did, then I know pretty much that all things were good and well. But it's when they're quiet. It is when there's no response that I know something's up. Of course, Jesus is omniscient. He knew all these things. He was asking a question for effect, not for information. But the text tells us in, in Mark chapter 9, verse 34, that the reason why they don't respond is they are ashamed. Isn't that the way that we live? We're ashamed. We're ashamed uh, of things, and we don't want to uh, have to speak to that. And it says that they were ashamed because an argument had 
come out. And the argument was, who was the greatest? What a childish response. What immaturity. Think about that for a moment. If we were to have a discussion and an argument was to break out on whose dad was better in the room, whose mom's cooking was better in the room, I would hope that wouldn't happen because we're all adults. And we would say, you know what? Your mom may be a great cook and mom, my mom may be a great cook and that's wonderful that there are two great moms who are great cooks in this world. But that's not what the disciples are doing. They're doing what my children do. I'm better than you. And here's the reason why I'm better than you. I wonder what must have been coming out. Now we know from the text from two weeks ago in our study that three of the disciples had journeyed with Jesus on the top of Mount Hermon. And they had been a part of an awe-inspiring event. The transfiguration of Jesus. And then the other nine were down in the valley. And what were they doing? They were trying to cast out a demon and were failing at accomplishing that task. Now we know that they come down, the three with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, come down from the mountain with Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, what you saw on the mountain, what you just experienced, I don't want you to tell anybody. I don't want you to say a word. And I wonder, and this is where I wish they would have had a video camera back in the day. The three guys come back and there's an, a, just a glow to them. You ever been a part of something so great and so awesome that the first thing you want to do when you see somebody is tell them about it? And they come down and there's this glow to their face. And one of our, let's say, Thomas says, Hey, Peter, what did you guys do up there? And Peter says with all this flair, I can't tell you. And then that must have created some issue. Well, he'll go to James, and Matthew goes to James and says, hey, Peter won't spill the beans. What did you guys do up there? Why are you smiling? What was so amazing? And John or James says, I can't tell you. Jesus said we got to keep it to ourselves. I'll tell you, in a room of people, that will start to create the haves and the have-nots. And what begins to happen is, is there's this response. And I wonder if... Peter or James and John had maybe opened their mouth when they shouldn't have and said, we're pretty cool. Jesus likes us more than he likes you guys, and that's why he took us up to the mountain. And I wonder if Andrew reminded Peter, hey, Peter, I know you're pretty big stuff in this group of the 12, but I was the one who welcomed you to Jesus. And if they went back and forth, you know, Matthew, hey, I'm a publican, and they start sizing themselves up trying to get the affection of their master, Jesus. Sadly, in our world today, brothers and sisters, while I wish I could say that we consign these type of arguments to our children, isn't it true in our world today that we live lives trying to tell the world that we're the greatest? Telling the world that we're important. Telling the world, look at me. Look at what I have going for me. Look who likes me. Look what table I sit at. Uh, look what friends I have, what car I drive, what house I live in. And we see that there is a difference between what God calls significance and what we call status. And I want you to notice something first, and it's a separation of, these, of this first point, and that is the first thing I want you to see is the self-life or the life of self. And I want you to understand that as we look at this selfish life, we need to take stock and ask the question, 
Is there some selfishness in our life? And so I just want to simply do just a quick test and ask the question in our hearts. And maybe it's not even lived out. Maybe it's just a desire that you have in your heart. But is there a desire that has a, a want or an expectation that puts you first? Do you have a mentality of putting me first? Putting your name in the lights? Always having a place of honor? Always having to be first place? There's something about us, innate in us, that we want to be served. We want our needs to be met. Third John tells us of a man named Diotrephus, and it simply says his sin in one phrase. He desired to be first. That was his sin. Now, is there anything wrong with desiring for people to meet your needs and to love on you? No, but if it's simply so that you can be first, then we've got a problem. Second, do you pursue popularity? Instead of being great in God's eyes and leaving it at that, do you at work or at school or in your neighborhood seek the status and the clamor of others? Do you pursue relationships with people so that you can look better? I see this all the time. I see the adults that still want to sit at the cool kids' table. And I'll tell you that it's a temptation that I have to deal with all the time in my own heart. Maybe it's not the issue of you being first. Maybe it's not the issue of you wanting to be popular. What about the acquiring of possessions? See, when we acquire possessions, we say to the world, look how important I think I am. Look at what I need. And instead of saying, Lord, I'm going to only take what you want me to have, I'm not going to strive to just continue to hoard uh, around myself all of these possessions of technology and things, but I'm going to leave it to you by your sovereign hand no, we begin to say over and over again, I'm important, I have needs, I have wants, and I want them to be accomplished in my life. And it's here that Paul says that when we live this way, that we seek to serve our own interests instead of the interests of others. And in this world, in this dog-eat-dog world, we live in a, a society that says it's more important that you get what you want than the person next to you. And we see it within television ads. We see it within our society over and over again. Now Jesus says, hey, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work because it goes against everything that the Scripture says. Now let me remind you and make this very clear that what Jesus is saying in verses 33 through 38 is that Jesus isn't against ambition or greatness. He says, if you want to be great, he doesn't say, don't you dare try to be great, or if you try to be great, this is what's going to happen, because finding or pursuing greatness is a sin. What Jesus says is, hey, if you want to be great, it's okay. It's okay to have ambition. It's okay to pursue a level of greatness. The question is, how are you going to get there? And if you're going to pursue a level of greatness by walking over people, by being unethical, by not following God and His Word, then you've got a problem. Because your greatness, your ambition is causing you to sin. Some take this to mean that we as Christians should never desire for greatness. And I'm not one of those people because it doesn't square up with Jesus' words. 
as a people, in our individual lives, as a church, we should pursue greatness. We should. But that greatness should be for one reason. The glory of God Almighty. And as we pursue that greatness, that greatness is used as a greater spotlight to shine on Jesus Christ. And that's different than the world says. And so well, this is what Jesus tells us. Here it is. It's not pursuing, uh, uh, pursuing popularity. It's not making sure you're first. It's not acquiring all kinds of possessions. What Jesus says for the Savior-focused or Savior-centered life is, first of all, an opportunity for us to humble ourselves. He says in verse 35, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and a servant of all. The word there for servant that Jesus uses is the word diakone, where we get the word deacon. And it gives the idea of waiting tables, of serving people. One thing I love about being bivocational, being a pastor and a caterer, is it teaches me what it means to be a servant. As a caterer, I'm the last to eat. I'm the one who gets the bottom of the pan. I'm the one who gets the last of the choices. And I have to recognize that there are others who come first before I do. And I need to make sure that people get what they need, even if it means at the end of the day, I may not get what I was hoping for. And it's important for us to remember to humble ourselves because there's everything about us in who we are and what we're all about that says you come first, that you get the first hand or the first opportunity for the things before you. There are some of us, and maybe we do it quietly, that desire respect and preferential treatment for people to set out the red carpet for us. But again, it goes, it goes against what Scripture says. In fact, Jesus doesn't just teach this. He lived it. Even though Jesus was God, He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But He made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Now here's the amazing thing. Jesus wanted to be great. Jesus had great ambition as He came into the world. God would not be God if He didn't have ambition, if He didn't have a thought of grandeur, because He is God. And the amazing thing is, is what Jesus did was that He humbled Himself for a season so that in due time, God would lift Him up. You see, the life of humility isn't just constantly sitting there saying, I'm going to humble myself, I'm going to humble myself, I'm going to humble myself. There's a season of humility, but we are told when we humble ourselves, God will raise us up in His due time and in His due season. The next thing that we see is that it involves honoring others. I want you to take notice of a certain phrase in our text. And it is of great importance because we forget this so often as people. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last. And notice what Jesus says. And the servant of all. That's a very important Greek word there, that word all. The Greek there gives us a wonderful picture of what all means. And you know what all means in the Greek? All. 
That's what it means. You don't need a college degree to understand that. I like when the English fits up with the Greek just so wonderfully. All means all. And what we need to recognize, it's not a servant of some. It's not a servant of those we like. But if we're going to honor others, it means honoring all. Honoring that person that drives you crazy. Honoring that boss that just hammers at you night in, day in and day out. We need to serve those who hate Christ. We need to serve those who mock us and who defame us because we stand for Christ. You mean I've got to serve my enemy? Yeah, that's what it means to love and pray for our enemies. What about that guy at work that drives me crazy? That neighbor who causes all kinds of struggles? What about people who don't look like me, who aren't from the same background that I have? To the vilest of the sinners around us and those who even hate the gospel, we are to serve them all. What Jesus is calling us to is to look at this world and say the way of this world is wrong. Brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus Christ, take up the towel, take up the water in the basin, and start washing the feet of the people of this world. That's what service is all about. Now he goes on and he says it involves helping outcasts. As if we need any more clarification, Jesus uses an illustration. He takes a child on his lap and calls us to serve even children. Now why would Jesus use this illustration? There are two reasons, I think. First of all, children historically, especially during that time, were known as property. Just a possession of someone greater. And he was telling the disciples and us today that we need to serve no matter, we need to serve people no matter their place on the social ladder in society. It doesn't matter if they're rich or poor, if they have an education or not, we need to serve them. The second reason why Jesus uses this illustration of children was that children have nothing to give back in return. I remember hearing my dad once tell me, and it was a humbling response. If you weren't so gosh darn cute, I would have gotten rid of you a long time ago. Now think about that. I think the reason why God makes children so cute is because if you think about it, they have nothing to give to the family, right? It's take, take, take. Okay? I need this. I need that. I know there's some moms out there that would amen that. Okay, there's never a time I've never heard my children come up to my my wife and say, Mom, is there something I can do for you? <laughs> it doesn't happen. And yet what Christ is teaching us is even when people are like that and children are a great example of that. When people are like that, our response doesn't mean uh, to moan and groan about how our needs aren't met and nobody cares for us. Our moment, and I've learned this from my wife, is in those times is just to continue to serve. Continue to love on them, to care for them, to minister to them. And the reason why, notice in the text what it says. When we begin to do this, verse 37 says, when we welcome little children, in our name, or in Christ's name, I'm sorry, we welcome Christ himself. The reason why we serve, and what Jesus is telling us is, the reason why we serve isn't just to be nice to all of you. My job to serve you isn't just to be nice to you. But in my service to you, I serve Christ. 
As I get down on my hands and knees, as I go around at, at a church event and pick up the dirty dishes from a potluck, I'm not just taking care of a job, but I am serving Christ. And in doing so, as I serve Christ, I'm going to be of a great blessing to my brothers and sisters, not only in the church, but outside the church as well. What Jesus wants us to know in this is he wants us to know if we want to change this world, if we want to be different, then it's not just simply being different of us yelling and telling how bad the world is, but in our workplaces, in our schools, in our homes and neighborhoods, that we begin to start serving. Now, Jesus says that's not enough. And he goes on to yet another thing that we need to address, and that is that the next thing, as we, after we've looked at service, is we have to start cultivating contentment in an age of comparison. Now, Mark doesn't tell us if this is a part of the same conversation, but John in verse 38 asked Jesus, he says, we saw a man driving out a demon in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Now that had to really fry, if you will, the nine disciples. Here the nine disciples, just a couple passages beforehand, have tried to drive out the spirit in the young man that was filled with the demon possession. And as I shared a couple weeks ago, the utter futility that must be seen, I don't know if many of you have seen that car commercial where the little boy in the Darth Vader outfit is walking around and trying to uh, force everything, he's trying to force the dog to move and trying to move the cup from the table, and with futility he's unable to do it. I wonder if the disciples were trying to do that with the demon-possessed guy, uh, just make it happen. Just come on, make it happen, and nothing happens. And then this average Joe in the crowd is now saying, hey, be healed, be free. And what happens? The demon possession leaves the person. And I wonder if the nine disciples are like, what's going on? He's not with us. He shouldn't be doing that. And so what the text says is that the nine go and they rebuke the man. Don't do that. Don't be healing people of demon possession. Cut that out. Now, the reason why many commentators believe that this is happening is because the disciples are starting to feel the edge of competition. The feeling that they are the only ones that should be able to do it. They are the only ones who are able to have the hope and peace that the world needs. And so what begins to happen is they begin to view anybody else who's doing what they're doing with suspicion. Now notice what the text says. Jesus says to him, hey, don't stop him. No one who does a miracle, in verse 39 it says, in my name and can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Whoever is not, for, uh, not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of cold water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. Jesus flips it again. And he says, don't be this issue of competition, but the first thing that we need to recognize, if we don't want to fall to the same thing, because we do it. We look at the church down the street and we say, hey, uh, they're singing different songs than we are, and, and maybe they uh, do some things differently. Well, they're not preaching the gospel, so we need to tell them to stop doing it. Or, or maybe someone is using curriculum that's different than ours. Or, or maybe they find themselves in their worship, worshiping different than us. And we begin to say, well, they're not for us. We begin to divide. Do you know that in our world today, there are 38,000 different Protestant denominations in the world today? 38,000. And the reason why is because we, just as the disciples did, look to the world around us and we say, hey, 
you're not one of us. Now, I don't want to diminish the need for discernment, but I want us to recognize a couple things that I think Jesus shows us. Number one, if we want to be disarmed from this issue of competition, then we must, number one, see seeing our work as a priority or a privilege. We need to see that our working for Christ is a privilege. The disciples say he was not one of us. Instead of worrying about what other people are doing, what we need to focus in on is what we are doing for Christ. I had a couple that uh, Amanda and I know real well that came and visited us um, about a month and a half ago. And they've been going to seminary, and uh, they were lovely people before they went to seminary. And I'm really struggling with them now. And I don't know where they got this teaching, but everything I heard from them, from the moment they got into the house to the moment that they uh, left our house was how bad everybody else was in the Christian world and how great they were. I don't know where that happened because I don't remember that when they left. And I'm disappointed uh, because somewhere they've gotten this idea that they're better than everybody else. And I said, you know... It's all right, they're serving God. I've heard people come to know Christ under that particular ministry and no, we may not do everything the same. And they say, no, they're not of us. We need to call them out. They need to be called out for their sin. And I'm like, well, I don't see any sin. I see differences. But we need to, first of all, before we start looking at other people, before we start judging other people, is just rejoice that it is an honor to serve our God. What the disciples had forgotten was the privilege it was to walk with Jesus for those three years. Why were they worrying about everybody else? Why weren't they simply just in the wonder and awe of following the king and just enjoying that time with him? When we begin to start seeing Jesus move in our lives, then we're going to be able to welcome new ministry partners. Notice what the text says in verse 39. It says, don't stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Now Jesus seems to say discernment is to be thrown out the window. I don't believe that at all. Because what Jesus is telling us is that we need to accept any and all who do a couple things. Notice first of all that this man in verse 38, it was a man who was driving out demons. That sounds like a good idea, right? Driving out demons? So when we look at people, the first question we have to ask is, are they a part of something noble? Okay, this guy wasn't putting demons into people. He was driving demons out. That's a good thing. Can I get an Indian Creek amen to that? It's good to get demons out of people. Okay, the second thing that he did in verse 38 is that he did it in Jesus' name. Now, this guy didn't get up and say, in the name of Siegfried and Roy, I cast you out, okay? He didn't say, in the name of so-and-so, some personality of that day. He didn't say, in the name of Caesar. He said, in the name of Jesus. So he was not only doing a good thing, but he was doing a good thing in the right way through the name of Jesus Christ. And in proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, he was saying, this power doesn't come from me, it comes from Christ. The, second, the third thing that we see is that it accomplished the work that he said it was going to. So we've got this demon-possessed person, the man comes and says, in the name of Jesus, I cast that demon out, and it says that it was done. 
Brothers and sisters, let us look at other ministries and let us look at other people that profess to be Christians under the same way. Number one, are they doing a noble thing? Now, there's a lot of people that are doing a noble thing that aren't believers. And that's why we need it in Jesus' name. And when we do noble things in the name of Jesus, through the power of Jesus, by the grace of Jesus, our doctrine is going to start getting into place because Jesus is going to reign supreme. And then the third thing is, is what they're wanting to happen by the power of Jesus taking place? And I will tell you, if those three things are taking place, then you stick out your hand. Better yet, you bring out your arms and you hug that person as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now you say, but wait a minute. They, they wear robes during their worship services. You hug them, and you say, praise God. But wait a minute. They do something called the liturgy. Well, you hug them and love them. Does that not mean that we as a church don't discern on what doctrines are important to us? Yes, but what Jesus is telling us is, when we welcome people like this, and we share and serve with people like this, it articulates to us something, and that is, he says, when you uh, do this, you will certainly not lose your reward. Here's the thing that I want you to understand. At the end of the day, while it is our job to be discerning to the teachers and incredibly the, the difficult false teaching that is out there that we need to be careful of, at the end of the day, we can only judge what we see and what we hear, and we can't know the heart. What the disciples were trying to do was to try to understand the heart. His heart's not right. He may be doing it right, but his heart's not right. Here's what I'm glad about. It says that we are to wait for the prize. He says there's a reward coming. Had that man not been doing what he was supposed to do, even if the guys had welcomed him into the midst, and he's like, man, I got everybody fooled, there's one person that he didn't have fooled, and that's God. And on the day of judgment, God would deal with that man. And we so many times want to do God's work. God says, I'm going to be the judge. And so he says, don't worry about that. You worry about yourself. I tell my boys this all the time. Don't worry about what your brother's doing. You just do what you're supposed to do. But what do they do? They come up, well, so-and-so's doing this, and so-and-so's doing And I'm like, well, what were you doing? Well, I was busy keeping an eye on him. Don't worry about him. You worry about self. We so often worry about other people that we forget to worry about what we need to be doing and what we need to accomplish. They're getting loud down there. The final thing that we see this morning, and I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but it is important, and that is that if we want to live this life upside down for Christ, it involves fighting our flesh, not feeding it. Fighting our flesh, not feeding it. Before we can close out this text, Jesus takes some time to reestablish. And what he begins to do is he says, if anyone, in verse 42, causes one of these little ones to sin who believes in me, it would be better that he be thrown into the sea. Now there's a lot of questions. Was Jesus talking about the child standing around him in the physical realm, but also the spiritual realm of the man who is casting out the demons that they had rebuked? And so there's this twofold thing that seems to be taking place. But what Jesus makes clear is, if you're not watching your life, then you are going to have an adverse effect on others. And this is what he says. First of all, fighting our flesh, not feeding it, involves realizing our sin hurts others. It involves realizing our sin hurts others. 
As we live this life, if we're more worried about everybody else and not worried about ourselves, we're going to fall to sin. And Jesus says that even though a sin may be done many times as a personal act in private, it has ripple effects that will go on far beyond the individual themselves. It's not hard to look at the life of David and the sin of David to see the ripple effect. David has a thought. He looks upon a woman in a wrong way. And then, of course, that act takes place. And he hasn't just done that by himself, but he has brought in all of his advisors and the people that went and got Bathsheba and brought him back to the kingdom or back to the, uh, the palace. And then it doesn't go there because she finds out she's pregnant. And what happens? Then he's got to conspire. And then who loses his life? Uriah does. And then what happens? The, the whole kingdom becomes in disarray because the family of the king falls apart. One sin dropped into a lake like a stone has ripple effects. And we know that David would run for his life because of that one sin for the rest of his life. One sin, a ripple effect that would impact so many people. One thing that I continue to challenge myself in is when I look to sin... When I'm tempted by sin, is to ask, ask the question, what will this do to my relationship with my wife? What will this do to my relationship with my children? What will this do to the relationship and testimony that I have in the world? What will it do to my involvement in the local church? And I'll tell you, by the time I've gone through all of that, that temptation doesn't seem very good anymore. And we need to recognize when we, if we want to live upside down for Christ, it involves recognizing the ripple effect. Now, how do we do that? We recognize the text says that the, it's a heart issue, not a physical issue. So how are we to make sure that we don't cause others to sin? We deal with the issue. Jesus tells us to deal with it, and I'll get to this in a moment, but to deal with it violently and thoroughly. But we must understand the issue of sin. Jesus told us that in Mark, I believe it's chapter 7, that it's not what is on the outside of a man that defiles him, but what is on the inside. And we need to recognize it's the inside of us. There was an early church father named Origen. And Origen saw this passage, and he saw his life was filled with the issue of lust. And Origen took this passage to heart, and he emasculated himself. And you know what he learned after that physical torment was done? He still struggled with lust. Because it wasn't the physical. It was inside the heart. And we need to understand, if we're going to deal with this, our fight isn't with other people. Our fight begins with the heart inside that, Jesus, or that the Scriptures say is deceitfully sick. Our heart is sick. And we need Christ to transform us and to change us. Because if we don't change the heart, then we have no chance of taking care of the physical side of things. The next thing he says is we've got to root out the sin habit. Notice verse 45 through 48. If your um, hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And the reason why is that while it may begin in the heart... What Jesus is articulating in our text is all the things that lead us to sin. The hand refers to the things that we do. The foot refers to the places we go. The eye refers to the things that we see or desire to have. 
And so if you think about that, Jesus in just a matter of a couple statements and a couple examples addresses the issue of sin in every one of our lives. And he says if these things are causing you to sin, then get rid of them. I remember the movie Fireproof where the man was dealing with sin of the internet. And you remember what Kirk Cameron does? Finally, he gets so sick of his sin, he takes the computer out. You remember, he takes the computer out, and out in the side yard, he takes the bat to the computer and just starts busting it. And then to the great horror of the, of the neighbor lady next door, she's like, good Lord, what are you doing? He was getting rid of that which caused him to sin. And so many times we're so worried about what everybody else is doing. Our biggest enemy isn't the church down the street. It's our heart. And Jesus is saying, you want to focus in on something? You want to go after something? Then go after your sin. There are some of us that need to get rid of some things in our lives. That some amputations need to take place in our lives. And it doesn't mean, and I hope this doesn't happen, I don't want you to come next week to church without a hand. But it may mean that you come to church without a TV in your life. You may come to church with, without um, all the money because you've given it away because money is causing you to sin. Maybe you've, you've learned some things about how you're sinning with your mouth or sinning with your thoughts or, or sinning with issues of anger. And you begin to root those things out. This last Wednesday I got a call uh, from an individual who has been told time and time again to get rid of technology because it leads them to sin in the area of um, the internet and that. And this man is losing his marriage. He's going to lose his children. And I says, well, what? how did you fall to it? He says, I remember you told me I should get rid of my smartphone because I can watch things and look at things on my phone. Well, I didn't get rid of it. And I fell in a moment and... And someone caught me with it. And instead of getting rid of a stupid phone, a stupid phone, the man's going to lose his family. Brothers and sisters, sin will eat us up. And if we don't deal with it like Jesus tells us to, then we're going to have trouble. I want you to notice one final thing, and that's verse 47, and we'll close this out, that refusing to fight leads to hell. One of the things that we need to be careful with is to be careful that we begin to paint this picture that we don't, we don't struggle with sin and as Christians we've eradicated the issue of sin. We'll never eradicate sin from our lives, especially on this side of glory. But one of the ways that you can know if you're a follower of Jesus Christ is what do you do with your sin? What do you do with it? Do you coddle it? Do you feed it? Do you love it? Do you pursue it? Or do you fight it with all your might? John Owen, a great Puritan pastor, spoke about his mortification to sin. Do you hate sin? The older I get, the more I have become a hater of my heart. Because it is sick. It is gross. The things that want to come out of that heart are gross. I'm, even, I'm too embarrassed to even talk about some of them because my heart is sick. So I don't trust myself. And so I start cutting things out of my life. I allow others to come around me and say, that's got to go. Because if we don't get rid of those things, they will eat us up. Now you look at the world, and in closing, let me tell you this. You look at the world, and the world says, pursue number one position. 
And it says, not only pursue the number one position, but compare yourself. Try to live like the Joneses do. And try to be in that competition. And then finally, don't fight your sin. Embrace it. It's a disease. It's not your fault. You're not to blame for it. And the world tells us all of this. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, you need to be last. If you want uh, to not live a world of comparison and competition, then start loving other people. And start ministering and doing what God has called you to. And finally, start fighting against your sin. Stop feeding it. And when we begin to do that, I can assure you of something. We're going to start looking salty. We're going to start looking a lot brighter in this world of darkness than we ever thought we would. And here's the thing. The people will say we're crazy. The people will say we're odd. The people will say we're old-fashioned. The people will say we're bigots. The people will say that we are um, ruining a world of tolerance. But I will tell you, when they see what Jesus is doing in us, the Scripture says by the power of His Spirit, we will attract people to Christ. And it may not happen all at once, but little by little, God will begin to change lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this time. And I thank You for Your Word and all that it teaches us. And Lord, I pray that You would challenge our hearts today. Challenge us in such a way that we will be different. Even though it means so much of the world will have to go from our lives, that we will look different, that we will sound different, that we will act different, but not for the sake of just going against the flow, but doing it for the sake of godliness and for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this church and what you're doing through the people in their workplaces and in their neighborhoods, in their communities. And Lord, I pray that you will give them the salt that they need to be the attractive Christian that you have said we can be when we follow you in your ways. In Christ's name we pray, amen.